The scripture for today's sermon is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. The word of God speaks to us. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he had started so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in, desire, in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is God's word to us. Thanks, sis. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is Dave. I have the honor of serving as lead pastor here at Frontline Church in Edmond. And as we continue to go through this series, Rhythms of Grace, looking at the spiritual disciplines over the summer, um, we are we're about halfway through. And so as we continue, let me pray for you. You pray for me. We'll pray with one another, for one another, and then we'll continue. So join with me. Father, we just take a moment in the season where, in theory, <laughs> it, it should feel slow and, and the pace of our lives should settle down over the summer, and yet we can feel so frenetic and, and um, pulled in every direction. And so we come with hearts of gratitude, thanking you that you sovereignly, God, who know us through and through, have led us to this moment to be together with this people, to be in this place, to hear this scripture. And we just take a deep breath knowing that that's how close you are. And we pray for the gift of presence, Spirit of God, that you would help us just be where we are to hear what you would have to say to us. And I pray personally, God, that you would help me help my friends, that you would help me proclaim the truth of who Jesus is and in a real way kind of get out of the way and only point to what you would have for us this morning. We're so thankful for your goodness and your grace and that we have so much and so many reasons to sing your praises. We thank you for your goodness, Jesus. We pray this in your name. God's people said, amen. How I was thinking about 
this passage of scripture yesterday was in terms of a question that I was asking myself and I want to present it to you. And the question is, how how would you like to encounter Jesus? Or where would you like to encounter Jesus? How would you answer that question in your life? Is there a place in your life that, that you're longing to encounter Jesus? Maybe it's a, a place of pain right now and you feel heartbroken and, and there's this place, this pain that you long to encounter Jesus. Or perhaps it's just a place that's precious to you. Maybe it has to do with a relationship or your family. Or maybe actually when you ask yourself that question, where or how would I like to encounter Jesus? Like a literal place comes to mind. Maybe you imagine yourself in your office or in your kitchen. That might be significant. This morning, as I mentioned, we're about halfway through this sermon series, Rhythms of Grace. And I've been thinking about like kind of unpacking that, that title, Rhythms of Grace, regular occurrences, rhythms, right? Just how Ben was playing the drums this morning and there was a regular beat, a thump of the drum, just a, a thing that we could count on that was coming again and again, a rhythm of grace. What's grace? An undeserved good gift from God. This sermon series is all about regular occurrences of gifts from a good God that we don't deserve, but we get anyway. Rhythm of grace. And it's a place, in a real way, these rhythms of grace, where we get to meet with God. We encounter the living God, Jesus Christ, as we've talked about already, prayer and scripture and fasting and even memberships in the church, that these are places of grace in which they are undeserved gifts that we get to encounter the power and the joy and the love and the life that we have in Christ Jesus. So as we begin this morning, I want to read a story, one of my favorite stories of somebody encountering Jesus. It's a short story, so I just want to read it for you, and we can talk about it kind of by way of introduction this morning. Look at Luke chapter 19. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So the scandal of the crowd of the city Jericho is that Jesus has invited himself over to the house of the richest man in Jericho in many ways. And he's not just rich in his possessions. He's, he's rich in a, a scandalous way. He's rich also in oppression and sin. Zacchaeus is a little man who's big in every other way. 
He's, he's big in his possessions. He's big in his success. He's big in his infamy. And he's also big in his sin. He's not just a tax collector, which in that context, many of us know, was someone who took money from the Jews for the purposes of funding the Roman Empire, who was their oppressor and subjugator. But all tax collectors didn't just take enough taxes. They took on their own account. They would defraud people to benefit themselves. And here, Zacchaeus is on top of this Ponzi scheme, right? And Jesus takes a beeline to this man and says, hey, as the Jewish custom would be, as a man of honor is coming into a city, I'm going to stay at your house. And in choosing to stay the night at Zacchaeus' house, Jesus is giving to him honor. And that's why people are up in harms. Nobody deserved this less than Zacchaeus. It's an act of grace. And during this stay, certainly there was deep discussion about the kingdom of God and the gospel and and good news and who Jesus was and what he came to do. And certainly there was a lot of prayer and certainly there was a lot of confession and honesty on Zacchaeus' part. And he emerges the next morning, and this is what Zacchaeus has to say to Jesus for all to hear. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I have I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And so Zacchaeus, a very rich man, says, hey, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which is deeply rhetorical because he's defrauded a lot of people of a lot, he's saying fourfold, four times what I've taken from them, I'm going to give back, functionally giving away all he has to people that he's hurt and people in need. I think often, what happened around that dinner table that night in Zacchaeus' house? Like, I want to know details, right? (laughs) But Jesus tells us the important stuff. He tells us what happens in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, meaning that he also has faith in God. And Jesus says one of the sweetest things we can ever hear. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So you look at Zacchaeus the day before he meets Jesus. You look at Zacchaeus the moment before he climbs up into that sycamore tree, and he is, he is captivated by a desire, a passion to get, to get, to get. He will sell out his own people, his own honor. He will sell out everything to get more stuff. And yet he encounters Jesus. Jesus seeks him out, finds him, befriends him, saves him in his lostness. And then we see the next day he proclaims to to Jesus, that all he has, he is willing to give. And so what's happened? He was captivated with a passion to get for himself. And then he encounters Jesus. And now he's captivated altogether with a different passion to give. Greed had a hold on him. And then God took a hold on a hold of Zacchaeus. And now Zacchaeus has let go of everything that he was holding so tight to. And the salvation of Christ is beaming through him. 
See, I love this story because it's a story that reminds us that, that God, as we've prayed, as we've sung, God can save anyone. Nothing is impossible for him. And when he does save, true salvation changes our relationship in so many ways. But what we see in Zacchaeus' life is that true salvation in Christ always creates a heart that's generous. It changes our salvation to our possessions, to our treasure, to our wealth. So this morning, as we continue in the series Rhythms of Grace, we're going to talk about the rhythm of grace that is giving. And to do so, we need to spend some time looking at what Emily read so well, 2 Corinthians 8, and look at the first 15 verses in this portion of this letter from Paul to the early church in Corinth, because the heart of Paul's message and what he's calling this church to, Paul's message is the miracle that we just saw take place in the life of Zacchaeus, that they would be a people struck by grace. And as they're struck by grace, they would excel in generosity and giving. So to begin, I want to give us some context, some historical context to what's happening here in the moment of the early ministry of Paul and in the life of this church. And to to kind of understand this portion of scripture, we need to keep three churches in mind. And the first is this church that the letter is written to. It's the church in Corinth. And Paul had planted this church in Corinth. And he's got a deeply, this, this letter, if you read the whole thing, commentators will tell you, and you'll sense that this is a really personal letter. Paul was particularly close to this church. And with this church, Paul had, had a, a, a particularly rocky relationship of ups and downs. And he wrote several letters to the church. We have two in Scripture, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And if we read 1 Corinthians, we, we, we hear in the 16th chapter that, that Paul to this church had written to them about taking up a collection, the collection. And from the beginning of Paul's ministry, the collection was a big part of his ministry. Paul went around planting churches, strengthening churches. And as he did, one of the things that he was aiming to do was to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem, which is the second church we need to keep in mind. In a real way, Paul's sending church. Because the church in Jerusalem... The, the, the genesis of the early church, where the Spirit broke out in Acts chapter 2, it was experiencing in, the, in these early days of Christianity deep persecution and deep poverty. And so as Paul was commissioned by the apostles in his ministry, he was commissioned to, to plant churches, strengthen churches, but also remember the poor. Specifically, keep in mind those here in the original church in Jerusalem that were under deep oppression in deep need. And so as Paul went about planting and strengthening churches, part of his ministry was taking up a specific collection to bless this church in Jerusalem, these people that were suffering in many ways. Now, unfortunately, what had happened in Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth is that the Corinthian church, in Paul's absence, had had leaders who were really liars kind of slip in and and dishonor Paul, twist the gospel. And so part of this church's story in Corinth is that they had rejected Paul's leadership for a season. 
And what happened between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is that has begun to be worked out. A young man named Titus was sent to be their lead pastor. And now they're in the process, by the grace of God, of being restored, living out repentance, turning back first to Jesus, and in doing so, receiving Paul back as an apostle of spiritual authority. And so what Paul is doing in the restoration of this church in Corinth is he's, he's actually calling them back to the heart of generosity that they expressed early on to be a part of this giving specifically to a church in Jerusalem that's in a hard place. See, it's important to understand that this section of Scripture is not about tithing or regular giving to the church, although tithing and regular giving to the church is deeply important, and there are plenty of Scriptures directly about that. Yet this passage, if we understand it correctly, is about a one-time specific gift from some churches to a specific church in a period of detailed specific need. So it's a very narrow scenario, but as we look at what Paul has to share, what we need to see is that it has deep and broad implication and application of our lives. Although this is a specific instance of, of giving, what Paul shares here about giving actually enlightens our hearts as to how we need to look at giving as followers of Jesus all the time. So, To begin to teach us these things, Paul holds up as he writes to this church in Corinth about giving to the church in Jerusalem. Paul holds up as a model a third church, which is a church, the churches of Macedonia, which brings us to our first point that we need to see, the Macedonian model. Paul holds up for us to consider through holding them up to the Corinthians this powerful and profound example of generosity. So let's look at this first thing, the Macedonian model of giving. Let me look with you at the first verse again. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, for their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. See, Paul begins to hold up as an example this this breathtaking church, this little sister church of of, of Corinth, the Macedonians, And he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And as we begin to see the grace of God here, Paul writes about that he wants to show is the Macedonian churches, specifically three churches, the the church in Philippi, the church in a place called Thessalonica, and a church in a place called Berea. These three small churches together make up the Macedonian church. And, and Paul is saying, look, I want you to see something beautiful, the grace of God that you find in these churches, and that grace of God is their generous heart to give. The grace that Paul's wanting us to see is their deep desire and willingness and heart to be generous. The grace of giving is what this passage is all about, something like eight times 
in these two chapters, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church about giving, Paul uses the word grace in Greek, charis. See, Paul wants us to see that grace and giving go hand in hand. They're inseparable. And this Macedonian church gave out of their understanding and through their impact of receiving God's grace. Grace, when understood fully, gives for the good of others always. Paul goes on to write, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul said a lot right there in just one sentence, right? Who are the Macedonian churches? Who is this church? Well, first, there are people of poverty, Paul tells us. The word Paul uses when he writes in Greek, their extreme poverty, in English, that word is translated to, it's the same word in English, bathysphere, which meant nothing to me, but I, I read in a commentary and explained what a bathysphere was. I did some research. It's a, it's a vessel that was invented about a hundred years ago. Think of like Jacques Cousteau or somebody that would explore the ocean, right? Who's that director? James Cameron, right? What do you do if you're a multi-multi-millionaire? You build a little submarine that goes to the bottom of the ocean. That's a bathysphere. It's the literal English word for it. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying the Macedonian church, when it came to their poverty, their poverty reached down to the very depths, the ocean floor of a scarcity and not having anything. That's where these churches live. They were at the bottom of the depths of poverty. And we come up at this point upon a challenge as modern-day suburbanites who live in Edmond or Guthrie. And there's, there's in this room certainly real financial hardship, and I don't want to belittle that. Some of us are facing financial strain and, and, and can experience real things regarding to lack that can be difficult. And yet when we think of poverty, we're, we're probably very, very, very far from the reality of the poverty that this church was experiencing like, honestly, when I think of poverty, the first person I often think of is my wife because it plays into our marital dynamics in a, in a funny but real way, right? I grew up the youngest of three, and I, I grew up in a, a family that, that had resources by the grace of God. And Anna grew up the oldest of 10, and her dad worked real hard, but we got 10 kids. Sometimes it's hard to make ends meet, right? One year, my wife, when she was, I think, 12 years old, wore cleats because they were the only shoes she had. And so when I think the honey jar is empty, Anna doesn't think the honey jar is empty, right? <laughs> She's like, you can pour your tea in there and get that residue out, right? Don't waste that, right? I think a paper towel is there to use one time and throw away. And Anna's like, what's wrong with you? You can use this multiple times, right? Yeah. So we have these fundamental different views of things in many ways because she experienced real scarcity in her life in ways that, that I didn't. But this church, far beyond even what my wife experienced in some real ways growing up, was a deep sense of lack. We're talking about empty stomachs for days on end. We're talking about sickness that, that is unending because you can't afford to warm yourself. This is a depth of poverty that is unimaginable to, to most of us, if not all of us, in this room. And it was the reality of these churches in Macedonia. 
So there are poor people. But above that and beyond that, who are the Macedonian churches? There are people who are afflicted. And theologians and commentators tell us that Paul is conveying that this church, these churches are, are being crushed by life because of their devotion to Jesus, because of their, their, their reality that they were living, that Jesus was their Lord and they were bowing the knee to him. That their cities in which they lived, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, they were rejecting and oppressing these Christians because they loved Jesus and it felt like literally the walls were closing in on them. So they weren't just poor, but they were picked on because of their faith. I did some research and I was trying to figure out like a modern equivalent. And the best thing that I think I could come up with is about the the 10,000 to 15,000 Christians that today in 22 uh, live in Afghanistan. That's a, a, a nation of deep poverty, one of the poorest nations on earth. And so the Christians that live there in particular experience deeper poverty because they experience deep affliction and persecution. It's one of the most dangerous places that a Christian can live. So if you're looking for an example that might help you grasp the reality of what these ancient brothers and sisters of Christ were going through, think of the modern day church in Afghanistan poor, and picked on. And what do you do there? If you're, if, if you're the Macedonian church, how do you live? What could we expect them to do? Paul tells us, in light of being poor and in light of being picked on, who are the Macedonian church? They're generous. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So from the outside, they look weak. From the outside, they look they have, like they have nothing to add. But these little churches explode with something precious, and they explode with the joy of giving. And what they gave certainly wasn't much. They didn't have much to give, When it came to real treasure, as far as it was defined by the world at the time, but they gave something so rich and so precious, they gave joyful hearts. The riches that they gave was the grace of giving for all the church to see, for us to see today. Paul goes on in verse 3 to say, They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, that word can be translated grace of giving in the relief of the saints. So Paul's saying, hey, they didn't just give according to what they could give. They actually gave contrary to their ability. In extreme poverty, in the midst of dire persecution, imagine the scenario. Paul is there speaking with these churches, strengthening these churches, encouraging these churches in their poverty, in their affliction. And just imagine the elders of these churches coming together and saying, hey, Paul, we need to speak with you. We have something that we need to to say. We have something that we long to do. Paul's saying, yeah, brothers, what is it? And they bring a little sack and they lay it before Paul and they say, hey, we've been praying and we've been planning and this is an offering we've taken up to support our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And imagine Paul's scandal where he says, oh, 
That is so precious, and I'm so encouraged, but we, we couldn't ask you all to give. In fact, our next offering taken up was going to be for you. You can't participate. You're far too persecuted. You're far too poor. And these elders say, no, no, Paul, please, and don't lose this. This is a poor people that are begging, but they're not begging to receive. This is a poor people that Paul tells us they're begging to give. Don't rob us of the joy, Paul, of helping our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Don't don't rob us of the grace, Paul. Don't deny us the grace of being able to participate in this with the other churches. And they correct the apostle Paul. (laughs) They theologically course correct him and they teach Paul something about giving that he didn't know through their generous hearts. Kent Hughes pastor and a theologian who's always helpful to me, particularly helpful on this passage. He writes, such is the grace of giving. It's not dictated by ability. It has nothing to do with being well off. It is willing. It views giving as a privilege. It is joyfully enthusiastic. And so we ask ourselves in this moment, like, how are these people like this? How can a church in such persecution and poverty experience and live out in such an exemplary way for all time the grace of giving? Verse 5, Paul says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is the key. The Macedonian church, they're they're responding to God's grace. This is the most important thing that we need to see and know about them. It's profoundly powerful, yet it's simple to understand. Paul says that they knew that their lives weren't their own. They had given themselves to God fully. And so, of course, everything that they had belonged to him as well. And when love captivated this church... It couldn't help but respond in love. Generosity is love's natural reflex. In light of this, Paul goes on to hold up the ultimate example of giving to the Corinthian church and to us. This is the second thing we need to see, the generosity of Jesus. Verse 8, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that, you also, that your love is, is genuine also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, the Macedonian church is an incredible, amazing, breathtaking example of generosity. But Paul's like, hey, let me one-up that and just give you the ultimate example of generosity, Corinth, which is Jesus. I've talked about this before, but if you look historically, good kings, kings are always the best gift givers, Right? Thousands and thousands of years, years ago, the king of Babylon gave his wife the, the, the gardens, the hanging gardens of Babylon because she was homesick. So he built for her as a gift one of the greatest wonders of the world. Elvis Presley gave away like 13 Cadillacs one day to random people in Memphis, right? It doesn't matter if you're an ancient king or you're the king of rock and roll. If you're a good king, you're a generous king, right? And the ultimate example of that is Jesus because Jesus is the king of kings, the best thing, the best king ever. And as a result, he's the most generous king ever. He gave himself. 
He, he came down from the, the riches of heaven, and he came down to earth, born in a manger, born in squalor, lived a life of obscurity, in poverty, lived out a ministry for three years of, of giving himself fully in every way, and that, that came to an end, a climax in him laying freely down his life. The depths of poverty. He gave everything, laid down every one of his riches. Why he did that? In love. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That there is a generous king who loves us so much that he laid down, he laid down every bit of his riches so that we would have life. That's what Paul's reminding the Corinthians about. This is how Kent Hughes puts it again. He says, Though Christ in his pre-existence with the Father could hold a white hot star in the palm of his hand, he emptied himself of his riches and became one of us, then died for us. Such was his poverty. So Paul's telling the Corinthians, he's telling us, hey, to follow Jesus means that you are struck continually with his giving, with his generosity. And then what we do, as one pastor said, is that we thunder in response to that with the grace of giving for the glory of Jesus and the good of others. So in light of the generosity of Jesus, Paul charges the church in Corinth with some things. And that's the third and final thing we need to see. He charges the church. So what are the implications for the Corinthian church? And what are the implications for us as we hear Paul's words as a result? What do we do with this? How do we live out the grace of giving? What do we need to keep in mind? What do we need to hold on to as true? And Paul gives us some things to consider, some things to, to hold up, some things to walk out. And the first thing is that we would progress in the grace of giving, that we would progress, that we would grow, that we would mature. Look back at verse 6. Paul writes, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, that he should complete among you this act of grace. So, or but, as you excel in everything, church in Corinth, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So the, the church in Corinth was the great gifted church of the early church. They had so many things going for them, Paul's pointing out, to encourage them. He's like, you guys are known for your faith. You're known for, you're among you, people that, that have the gift of just speaking in a really profound way, that can move people, that you have the gift of knowledge. It's great to be in a discipleship group with many of the people in this church. They know a lot. It's really helpful. They can help unpack the profound mysteries of the gospel that are hidden for us. We know, reading 1 Corinthians, that this church excelled in spiritual gifts, right? The Spirit was at work in and through them. They had so many gifts, yet Paul is saying, in the midst of these gifts that you have, you still have room to grow because you need to grow and progress in the grace of giving. As it is today with so many churches here in the, the States, I read an article these past few weeks in Christianity Today, and the article is entitled, Who are the Most Generous? Not Who Do You Expect? It was written in 2020 by a man named John Lee, and he writes this in the article. He says, according to nonprofit source, only 5% of church members give regularly. 
Households, listen to this, households that make more than $75,000 are the least charitable. Nationwide, Christians today give 2.5% of their income away. For comparison, in the Great Depression, that number was 3.3%. 37% of those who consider themselves evangelicals don't give to the church at all. And according to a study from the University of Notre Dame, cited by Christian Smith and Hillary Davidson in their book, The Paradox of Generosity, when it comes to giving away 10% of finances, only 2.7% of people, religious or non-religious, fall into this category. In this article, also John Lee says that people in the States are getting progressively less and less generous upon generation to generation. Baby boomers, congratulations. You guys are the most generous. Gen X, you guys are a little less generous than that. And then, believe it or not, my generation, millennials, I'm a, what they call a geriatric millennial. I barely make it in. But although we, although we, when we're surveyed, say that generosity and giving is really important to us, that the mass majority of millennials give less than $50 a year away. It's one of the many reasons that we ought to be made fun of and picked on, right? I can say that because I am a, a millennial. Those numbers are, are not scary primarily because we should, we should be fretting about church ministries making their budget or not. Those numbers are scary primarily because we should be scared about the maturity of Christians in our nation, because this is an issue of spiritual maturity. No one grows in maturity in Christ without entrusting God with our treasure and our finances. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if we look and we see that the trajectory that the people of God are on is to entrust God less and less with our treasure, to be less and less generous generation upon generation, then what should concern us and what we need to pray about and what we need to hold up before us as we confessed as the, the mirror of the word of God to look at our own lives is to really look and see, hey, am I following Jesus in this area of my life? Is my heart like a, a house that Jesus has access to, but where the treasure lies is locked to him? And perhaps today he's knocking on that door saying, hey, I want your joy I want you to follow me. I want what's best for you. As Paul's going to say, hey, this is good for you. And perhaps some of us are at a threshold of spiritual growth and we can sense that we're stagnant. And why we're stagnant is because we haven't stepped into the rhythm of grace and the spiritual discipline that is generosity. And our generous king longs for that for us. So Paul calls the church to progress in giving. He also calls the church to be purposeful and passionate in the grace of giving. To be purposeful and passionate. Look at verse 10. And this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desired to do it. Remember, this church had been planning on being generous and giving to the church in Jerusalem, but yet they had this lapse. They got derailed on their mission, and now Paul's restoring them. And as, restoring, as he's restoring them, he's reminding them of the, the passion and the purpose they once had. 
And that, that word desire here that Paul uses, it, it's thelo in the Greek. It means determination and delight. It's the crossroads of determination and delight. Paul's saying that you desired, you, you longed to, and were passionate about giving. And I'm calling you to return to that desire and that determination. Remember that passion and that purpose. And as Paul shares that, which we need to keep in mind, that just like prayer or just like scripture reading or just like gospel community, like the, the spiritual discipline of giving is not something that we just spontaneously will, will do to the degree that we need to. We're not going to drift into it without a passion or a plan. But, but like anything that's important, that we have a desire to do, that we must be purposeful and we must plan. We must take time to pray and process. And, and before the Lord ask, hey, God, what are you calling me to do as it relates to giving to the poor? What do you want that to look like in my life? What are you calling me to do as it relates to giving to my local church? What does that look like in my life? God, what are you calling me to do as it looks like being generous to my friends or neighbors or family? Who are you calling me to bless? That this early church was called to plan and scheme and architect their generosity as it is with us. Paul also says that we would be proportionately generous in the grace of giving. He calls the church to be proportionate in the grace of giving. What does that mean? Look at verse 11. So now finish, so now finish doing it as well. That's Paul's one charge here. This is the one command in all this scripture. So do it, Paul says, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. See, Paul's reminding us here that the focus is always the heart. He says, give according to what a person has, not according to what a person doesn't have. That's what I mean by proportionate giving. That we give according to what God has entrusted us with as stewards. It all belongs to him. And some of us, by the grace of God, have a whole lot. And we have savings and we have income. We've been giving, given by God the ability to work. And we are, we are stewards over much treasure, much possessions, much wealth. And by God's grace, we can give generously and glorify him. Praise be to God. There are others of us, and maybe you're a college student or, or you're a single parent in some way and you desire to give, but there's a voice in your head when you give and you feel like because it doesn't seem like a lot to you that it isn't worth much. And Paul is laying waste to that. And he's saying, no, even if you give a little to you, but it's generous and it's sacrificial like this church in Macedonia, that's a big blessing to not only God, but the church as a whole, that everyone can experience the rhythm of grace, whether we have a little or a lot. Everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to know, the, the, as what he'll say in the next chapter, the cheer, the joy of giving that God delights in. And lastly, Paul gives us this charge that we would be partners in the grace of giving. Verse 13, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. 
See, Paul is not saying here, I don't believe, that, hey, y'all in, y'all in Corinth, you give to the church in Jerusalem, and then someday they're going to pull out this piece of paper that says, I owe you to Corinth and pay you back in kind. That you're going to give them an interest-free loan within the church, and someday when you're hard up, you can say, hey, I've done you this favor, and now I'm calling upon that favor for you to pay me back. That's not what Paul's saying at all as he's speaking to fairness, right? Because the church in Jerusalem would never be in a place where they could pay the church in Corinth back. They were, again, remember, they were persecuted. They were poor. That's why this collection is being taken up. But what Paul is saying is, look, you church in Corinth, you are uniquely positioned as people who have been entrusted with much to bless the whole church in profound and powerful ways. And you need to take that responsibility seriously. You have huge opportunity to be generous, and you need to steward that well. And we, as this congregation in Edmond, if you hear anything, we should probably hear that and sit in it. Consider what God has entrusted us with and hear Paul's words that there ought to be fairness within the entirety of the church. And one way that we can do our part as those who have so much is to give generously for God's glory. But Paul is saying also, look, that all churches are able to contribute. The the church in Jerusalem, there's fairness in the sense that they've given in real ways precious gifts that are priceless right? It's through Paul that the church in Jerusalem was sent. They gave the gift of the gospel. That's the treasure they gave. And so different churches are going to be able to give in different ways, but God sovereignly cares for all through the generosity of Paul. That's what Paul is saying here at the end when he quotes Exodus, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. He's saying, hey, in the wilderness as God's people wandered, that God would miraculously provide what they needed every morning with bread from heaven. And here in the new covenant, God's going to miraculously provide everything we need through all of the church giving generously to one another. So what Paul shares here is what Zacchaeus experienced when he met Jesus. Saving grace that impacts us in such a way that we give generously, experiencing the grace itself that is giving. And as I've been thinking about these rhythms of grace, one picture that I use is quite literally that sycamore tree in my own heart. One way I imagine it is that tree that Zacchaeus climbed, right? He wanted to encounter Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to meet with Jesus. And so he put forth the effort to climb that tree. And that's the place in which Jesus met him. And and so it is with things like prayer and scripture reading and gospel community and fasting and giving that we would climb the tree of generosity. And as we do so, we would know that we are experiencing the grace of giving, and it's a place in which we can meet Jesus by the by power of the Spirit of God. So let's stand and pray. Father, we, we pray, first and foremost, that you would bring to mind ways in which that we as a congregation have have been following you in the grace of giving and experienced the grace of giving and that we would celebrate, we would be encouraged, we would look at things that are true and praiseworthy and glorify you. And we also pray 
just in boldness and honesty that as we each and every one of us in, in different ways are invited to grow and, and progress and mature in the grace of giving, that you would bring that to mind now. And that we would see that as a place of passion and purpose, but a place of praise, a place where you get to be glorified and we get to experience your heart as we reflect your heart. And so we just hold up our lives, we hold up this congregation, we hold up everything that you've entrusted us, and we say together once again that you are king, <laughs> that we love you, that you're Lord of all. And we, we ask that we would know the full joy of being in Christ Jesus. And we know that that means knowing the full joy of being in Christ Jesus means knowing the generosity of Jesus impacting our hearts and being expressed through our lives. So would you do that to a greater degree in us and through us, Jesus? We pray this in your name. God's people said, amen.